0: You're listening to the Co Main Event podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co Main Event Mixed Martial Arts podcast. I'm your co-hosts, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA today it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's an early morning episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. It's about 9.30 a.m. here in Montana on Monday. Uh, but since you and I have small children, that basically makes it feel like the middle of the afternoon to us anyway.
1: I was going to say, you're going to get yourself in trouble by your own rules, where people are going to point out, isn't Chad Dundas the same guy giving ring girls a hard time when they good morning at 10 a.m. I mean, comparatively
0: speaking, it's an early morning episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast since we normally record this thing at about 3 p.m. Mountain Standard Time.
1: Right, and not only are we recording at a different time, we are in your boudoir.
0: Yes, we are. Yeah, we are in the master here at the home.
1: Yeah. The master bedroom. I would have just called it a bedroom except for these curtains. These gives curtains it, make it a boudoir, my yeah, man. Yeah, it
0: gives it, a, gives it kind of an expensive, uh, uh, you know... Boudoir feel, yeah. I guess.
1: Feels like I I now know what it would be like to visit the home of a French hippie.
0: I mean, I feel like you feel more like you're a kid who's about to go in the Navy
1: and you're here to lose your virginity. <laughs> Come on, be honest. <laughs> well, you sitting at this, imperiously at this desk, uh, makes it turn into a whole different experience. I yeah, just that. to set
0: the scene, Ben's sitting on this couch that we have in our bedroom. Lovely that's couch. Because that's how we roll. Uh, and I am sitting at the, the desk that I use uh when I'm when I want to write when I'm upstairs. So I am addressing him from my desk. Yeah. Which finally concedes me the respect and position that I've always deserved.
1: <laughs> well, agree to disagree.
0: Three rounds as usual this week in the Co Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Steep Stipe! Hey. Stipe! Hey. Stipe! In round number two, so Cyborg Justino may well be the best women's fighter on the planet, and we're just going to let her hang out there with no division to fight in in the world's largest MMA organization. Real cool, you guys. And in round number three, Vitor Belford, we hardly knew ye. Uh, actually, we knew you almost completely. We knew everything you were capable of, both positive and negative, and that makes this end all the more ignoble for you because... Make no mistake, my friend, this is the end. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from our old friend Brady Carlson. He writes, Bellator isn't in the Will Brooks business anymore. What does this say about the promotion? More interested in having Michael Chandler as their champion or sick to death of all his negative energy? Are we going to see Mr. Brooks complain about Reebok and the UFC or fight whoever the fuck in World Series of Fighting? Well, that's a good question, Brady Carlson. Uh, so Bellator released Will Brooks, its its lightweight champion, and stripped heavyweight champion.
1: Vitaly Minkoffs
0: Vitaly Minkoff.
1: Right. Who's uh, been fighting, just not for Bellator.
0: Right, which is probably a problem. Yeah. If you are Bellator, probably pretty cool if you're Vitaly Minnikov.
1: Uh, but it's not this... like, I mean, the Vitali Minikov one, okay, fine, do whatever you want to do there. It's not like there are a whole bunch of Bellator fans sitting around and being like, a, a heavyweight division without Vitaly Minnikov? I say good day to you, sir.
0: Uh, they did this on Saturday afternoon, is that right, or Friday? I thought they did it just hours Saturday before. Saturday afternoon, yeah. They did it just hours before... Uh, they're the Bellator event. What was it? Bellator one hundred and fifty three. Is that what it was? Sure. And uh, UFC 154. one hundred and fifty four. One hundred and fifty four and UFC one hundred and ninety eight. Uh, so just like you know, slipping it in the news cycle just before everybody's live blogs or whatever. People still doing live blogs? Yeah. The before they came along and pushed it right
1: off the front page of all of the all the blog sites. Yeah. Well, the Will Brooks one. <sighs> okay. If you are Will Brooks, how are you supposed to feel about this? Because on one hand, you were. Outwardly disgruntled with Bellator and how you're being treated over there, and have been for a while. Yeah, let's say talking about trying to get that part-time job at Target, uh, you know, out there folding some fitted sheets, making a little extra green on the side. I, I understand that that means you're probably not happy with your current employment situation. But then when Bellator just says, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to go through this dance of the matching period and all this back and forth negotiations. We're going to do you a solid, let you go early and let you get on with your career on one hand. Cool. On the other hand, there goes that bidding war you might have been hoping for if you're Will Brooks.
0: Uh, yeah, you know, Will Brooks, I don't know that there would necessarily be a tremendous bidding war for Will Brooks. He's, he's the guy who is going to come along at this point and underline the difference between the mixed martial arts industry and being a pure sport. Because Will Brooks is a hell of a fighter. He's won eight fights in a row in Bellator. He beat Michael Chandler two times in a row in 2014. He fought twice last year and beat Dave Jansen and Marcin Held, also in Bellator. Uh, He's 29 years old, a a guy who's probably a top five lightweight in the world. Uh, And I would be surprised if there are very many people out there who want to pay a tremendous amount for his services? Uh, not because he's not a good fighter, he is, but he's not the most exciting fighter in the world. And I've never dealt with the man myself, uh, so I'm, I'm just saying what I've heard through the grapevine. And it is that he uh, he possesses a disdain for the public relations slash marketing side of the sport, or just doesn't doesn't uh, maybe doesn't light the world on fire in an interview setting? Really, a disdain. Well, that's what everyone says. I'm just – I'm passing along the the Twitter
1: scuttlebutt, what's out there on the wire. Okay. I mean, I've I've talked to him uh, and – Maybe it was just a disdain for doing it for Bellator. Yeah, that could be or, you know, and it depends when and under what circumstances you ask somebody to do this stuff. You know how that goes that some guys – like, for instance, Phil Davis is a good example we'll talk about a little later. Where Phil Davis is in person a really good interview and a really entertaining dude. And I, there's no one I can think of who is a better interview in person and a worse interview on the phone than Phil Davis. Short of Chris Weidman, Phil Davis is probably the worst phone interview
0: I've ever done. It's remarkable how bad he is. Yeah, And I mean, especially when you compare it with, compare it to how, how affable and good he seems to be in person. It's
1: just right. very strange. That's the thing. That's the thing that really shocks you about it. Cause you're, you're not expecting that. And, uh, so I don't, maybe that could be part of it because I, when I talked to Will Brooks, it was when I was at American Top Team uh, spending a few days there in, in Coconut Creek and found him to be a really affable and intelligent dude.
0: Okay. Well, maybe I misspoke. I don't want to throw Will Brooks under the bus. I'm just saying that I get the impression from the people that I know and the things that I've seen on social media that there's not going to be tremendous interest in Will Brooks from – uh on the free agent market, let's just say. Like, he might get an offer from the UFC. He might get an offer from World Series of Fighting, but at least the offer he gets from the UFC, I've been led to believe, isn't, it's not gonna, they're not gonna break the bank.
1: It's not gonna be to an Eddie Alvarez up, kind of situation. No,
0: they're, they're not gonna break the bank trying to pick up Will Brooks, which, when you think about it, like, he's in the worst possible position. If, if you concede that he's not the most exciting fighter in the world, he's also really good. So, what, so he's the guy that you would bring in who would, beat your exciting top prospect via wrestling-heavy, unanimous decision, which, if you are the UFC, is maybe not what you're looking for.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think he's he's that limited. I think he can do more than, than maybe you give him credit for right now, but I do agree that he's not going to get exactly the kind of uh, offers that talent-wise he would seem to, to demand. I wonder how much of that, and it, it's hard not to compare it to the Eddie Alvarez situation, but I wonder how much of that is... If you're in the lightweight division, already a talent-rich division, and the UFC's thinking about what free agents are worth spending money on, especially when we're really looking around for people who are going to be instant needle movers, uh, free agency-wise, do they just feel like, you know what, we're not hurting at lightweight right now?
0: If Will Brooks is a light heavyweight or a heavyweight, he probably shows up at his house and Dana White's there with a Ferrari and he just tosses him the keys. Says, <laughs> congratulations, kid. That's my Dana White impression. I it's need, not very good. It needs work. Yeah. It's actually just more of a stock promoter voice.
1: <laughs> and like Welcome 1930s to the big time. promoter voice. Well, hey, just that's... taking a cigar out of his clenched teeth. I should point it.
0: out, if Chad Dunn was making the rules, a fighter as talented as Will Brooks would, would get paid a lot of money. Oh. I'm merely saying if what if, I've heard is the reality of the of the marketplace.
1: Chad Dundas was making the rules. I imagine would be living in a very different world.
0: Yeah, there would be alligators in there.
1: In yeah. the cage. And weird curtains.
0: All right, the next piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Dinesh in Miami. He writes, my dudes, exclamation point. So Phil Davis got kind of a bullshit win over King Mo and Bellator, and now will apparently fight the big English homie Liam McGeary for the title. Should I be excited? Discuss. I'm going to come out and say, yes, you should be excited.
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting style matchup. Uh, it's interesting, I think, to just... When you see them standing next to each other, first of all, did you see that uh, that video of them having a little backstage discussion afterwards, and they're they're both in their ties and no,
0: and, because I saw that you tweeted about it and described it as awkward,
1: painfully awkward. I so, would say so. Yeah, that's
0: that's not the kind of thing that I typically can watch on via video. But I read the story about it.
1: So the I, story, the story does not capture it. I'm afraid, and I think the the thing that that oh man, Phil Davis changed his
0: Wikipedia picture. It's no longer longer
1: him walking down the street with his shirt off, tucked into the back of his jeans.
0: No, it's just like a normal picture of him wearing an affliction hoodie and smiling at the camera.
1: Well, that's no fun at all. Phil Davis. Next, you're going to tell me Conor McGregor is no longer in like a bow tie and a three piece suit in his Wikipedia picture. So the Phil Davis King Mo fight at
0: Bellator 154 this past Saturday. uh, I don't know that it was amazing. It kind of turned out to be exactly the sort of fight that I figured it might be which is the kind of fight that Phil Davis can get into at times against a guy that he can't dominate with his wrestling and a guy who has enough power in his strikes to kind of make Phil Davis nervous. And that's the, you know, it was it was just kind of tepid the whole time. Uh, the decision, I know, was a little bit controversial. I thought King Mo was going to get the nod, but I also was kind of doing other stuff while it was going on on the TV. so
1: I thought it was close. I mean, I don't think, maybe it seemed like... Uh... I don't know if the, the commentary might have biased some people and, and they thought it was more of a runaway than it was, but I it's one of those I can't get too fired up about the decision. I, I probably also would have given it to King Mo, but um, that's why I think that the Liam McGeary one is a better style matchup because as we've seen with Phil Davis in the past, when he is up against other wrestlers, uh, like when he was up against Rashad Evans, and, and uh, like it just seems like it, he has the capacity to enter into a lot of stalemate type situations or just not a whole lot of action at times um, or not a whole lot of meaningful action a guy who he probably will be able to take down but might get himself in trouble once he takes down that's an interesting test for him and especially a big dude like Liam McGeary that's the kind of fight that I do want to see
0: no I totally agree I think that uh, it's gonna be an interesting fight Liam McGeary despite the fact that we don't talk about him a ton either on this show or really in like the uh, the popular narrative is an extremely interesting prospect. I guess you can't even call him a prospect now. He's the Bellator light heavyweight champion, but he's an extremely interesting dude at light heavyweight just because he's 6 foot 6. Uh he, he's got incredible submission skills. He's undefeated at 11 and 0, he's coming off uh that win over the big homie Manny Newton at Bellator 134 and then a, a submission over Tito Ortiz uh at the Dynamite event last September. But uh he's one of these dudes that that seems like the sky is the limit for him, but we don't really know how good he is as compared to uh let's just say UFC level light heavyweights let's cut to the chase. That's really what we mean when we would talk about him not fighting you know uh prominent competition. So I think a matchup with Phil Davis is exciting and interesting for him because Phil Davis is a dude while. Well, he wasn't exactly on the verge of winning the UFC light heavyweight title when he was over there. He's always been a top 10 guy and considered, uh, you know, a, a pretty serious customer at 205 pounds. So I'm really interested and excited to see how Liam McGeary will deal with him.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, that you're right that the problem with trying to decide where to rank Liam McGeary in your mind is – the quality of competition question, because if you sit around and ask yourself like, all right, we've talked about the drop off in talent after the top three or four guys at light heavyweight, but is Liam McGeary for instance, better than Ryan Bader? Like that that kind of question that you could easily get stuck on. And when you see him in a fight with Phil Davis, uh especially Phil Davis on a little bit of a win streak here, then yeah, you're gonna get some answers to that, even if they have a terribly awkward situation. Phil Davis tries to make a joke, and it seemed like he tried to make a joke about Liam McGeary getting beaten. That's what it was. He was like, oh, maybe we should fight in New York, but I don't know. hes I thought, this guy's from New York, so maybe he doesn't want to get beat there, and he kind of like starts cracking up at his own joke before he's really allowed before he's allowed the moment to land. I think that's the problem, and Liam McGeary just kind of stares at him, and I think the interpret—the temptation is to interpret it as Liam McGeary is pissed off about him making a joke about him losing. I think Liam McGeary was just confused because that's not really how you make a joke. So you think Liam McGeary, more than anything, was disappointed in Phil
0: Davis's timing?
1: Yeah. He felt like the delivery needed work.
0: Okay. Well, maybe now I do need to go back and check out the video
1: just I, to see. Now you'll appreciate it. <laughs>
0: Next question this week comes to us from Ethan Andrews. He writes, while watching Shogun Hua's walkout on Saturday, it occurred to me that I was about to witness a small upshot in the mostly maligned Reebok deal. Namely, I was looking forward to seeing Shogun fight in something other than his signature one size too small white boxer briefs.
1: Oh, you know the ones he means, the bad boy ones. <laughs> so he gets to the Budweiser
0: prep point, strips off his warm ups, and damn, there they are. And there Shogun is, waistband UFC logo stretched to italics under a fit man's muffin top, yanking on two short legs like a guy who spent his best years in in a front wedgie. How did this happen? Is Shogun lying to the UFC about his (laughs) pants size? Did Reebok quietly take a little off the bottom for the Brazilian legend? Is there anything to discuss here? Answer, no but then it's a podcast. So maybe <laughs> this might be my favorite email we have ever gotten. You this one really tickles your funny it bone. It does. I tell you what.
1: This this has so many beautiful elements to it. Um <laughs> and you just it paints such a vivid picture in your mind, doesn't it? It doesn't does do it? that. It
0: does do that. And uh you know, he's saying what we're all thinking about Shogun who is tights all the time. But now this once again just reinforces the personalization aspect of the Reebok fight deal. <laughs> or if you want to wear a child's pair, <laughs> a boy's pair of, of, of white fight shorts, when you go out there and here you are, 34-year-old man, go for it. Reebok will make that. They'll make your dreams come
1: true. See, now I just imagine a conversation between Shogun and Reebok executives where they're like, you look like you're about like a large. Like, we'll send you a large. And he just like crosses his arms over his chest, stares at them and says in a firm voice, medium.
0: For years, Shogun Hua's wife has been cutting the tags out of his, his shorts and sewing <laughs> mediums in there just because she doesn't want him to know that he's a large. So we talked a little bit last week about this fight, Shogun Hua, against uh, Beaston 25-8 Corey Anderson at UFC 198. Shogun Hua ends up winning by split decision. A uh, little bit of home cooking down there in Curitiba, it seems like, uh, but but uh I don't know, man. Does this seem to you like the worst possible outcome for Shogun Hua? That he like goes out there against Corey Anderson, and because maybe there was perhaps not quite enough beastin in this fight, he is able to get this split decision, and now suddenly is riding a two-fight winning streak in the light heavyweight division, and probably feels like, you know what? I could do this for a while. I could do this for a while longer. My shorts still fit. <laughs> I'm out here nabbing wins. I'm wearing the same shorts I wore back in pride. That's right. I'm I'm wearing my
1: high school shorts. <laughs> <laughs> Literally wearing them. Uh, you know, he didn't look awful in the fight. We'll give him that. He got out wrestled a little bit, but uh, he also he still has the power, the old Shogun power. He, he was able to drop Corey Anderson a couple times. So it's not like he needs to be put in the old fighters' home immediately. Again, somehow by some trick of the universe, he's only 34 years old. Uh The problem, I think, is going to be that because of who he is and kind of his stature in the division and in the UFC and in mixed martial arts, you can drop down and fight like a Corey Anderson, a young guy coming up, and you beat him, and then the next one's probably going to be pretty tough. You know, what else are you going to do with Shogun? You're not going to put Shogun against, you know, some gimme fight at... 205 pounds you're probably going to save him for another either big fight card or big brazilian fight card that you want to add some pop to and you're going to ma- have to match him up against somebody legit and that's i think where you're going to get into trouble if you're shogun
0: yeah uh and some of the problem maybe here with shogun is a problem of perception in that we remember the shogun hua of 2005 back when he was considered the young gun of the shoot box academy and that uh it seemed like he was the heir apparent to vanderlei silva and that that it was a good possibility that maybe Shogun Hua was the best uh, at the time pride middleweight or light heavyweight on the planet Uh, that year when he beat Quentin Jackson, Antonio Rogerio, Noguera, Alistair Overeem, and Ricardo Arona uh, all as part of the uh, pride middleweight Grand Prix. And it just seemed like this dude was the future of the sport. And since then, obviously, he's been, his career has been derailed by a few knee injuries. and, And at this point, even as a 34-year-old man, there's a lot of a lot of miles on that body for Shogun Hua. So, um, I don't know, man. I feel like sometimes when we look at him and we say he looks old and he doesn't look like the guy he used to be, I feel like maybe it's just a, a matter of, like, not necessarily wasted potential, but, like, unfulfilled potential. That at one point we thought this guy was going to be a force to be reckoned with at light heavyweight for the foreseeable future, and he just never kind of became that. And at this point we're dealing with, like, a... a a lesser version of him and that seems like particularly bittersweet when you when you watch him fight like if and if maybe if he had not been so good in pride we would like we would somehow be a little bit more cool with it i don't
1: yeah, know yeah maybe well it was kind of shocking to me to remember that the last time like now he has a two-fight win streak because right? he beat uh roger Nogg. Uh, and then gets the split decision over Corey Anderson. You, do you remember the last time he had won two fights in a row? I don't. 2009. Well, when that's he why beat, I don't remember. When he beat Mark Coleman in that just absolutely awful fight for both guys. Uh And then when he knocked out Chuck Liddell in one of those, hey, Chuck, take this one seriously. And it's going to be kind of a referendum on your career kind of fights. Uh That was the last time he won two fights in a row after oh. that it's been you know kind of win one lose one uh win one lose two uh for the the years between 2009 and now shogun is back right sure he's got the same shorts got those somehow same
0: shorts. still still fighting in his at his high school same shape he was in in high school, wearing the same shorts. Last question this week comes to us from Christopher Thomason. He writes, I've been a fan of Mr. Matthew Burton Brown for a long time, a scrappy bungalow thrower who always seems like he is rebelling against the man. What's not to like? Apparently the citizens of Brasil, sick, uh, think otherwise. He gets hit by three different fans on his walk out to the ring, tapped by Maya, and then assaulted by a former coach. Are you fucking kidding me? Please discourse the shit out of this thing. Yeah, weird weekend for Terrible Matt Brown weekend for matt brown just
1: almost unimaginably bad uh although let's start with the thing the the brazilian crowd because let's make it very clear here that that is asshole behavior on their part that has nothing to do with matt brown yeah i know he came out at the weigh-ins with the old double birds which makes for a, a photo we're all gonna enjoy using for a long time like just a kind of a quintessential matt brown photo making a matt brown face flash in the, the middle fingers as he comes out to the crowd. But you know what? So what? That's just part of the game. He has to go down there to Brazil and fight Demi and Maya. The crowd's going to be against him. They're going to shout, you're going to die. He gets to give it back to them a little bit. They do not get to take a swipe at him during his walkout in return. That is over the line, Brazil, and you need to stop that shit.
0: Yeah. Can I speak directly to my friends in Brazil for Please. a moment? Brazil, love the passion, but you guys are taking this shit a little bit too seriously. You know what I mean? Like, everyone's here for fun, you know? <laughs> Matt Brown is just,
1: he's just goofing with you.
0: You don't necessarily need to take a swipe at the guy when he's doing his walkout.
1: You're saying we we want to have fun, but we don't want to be foolish.
0: Yeah. Don't don't push it too far. Right. Brazil. Uh, do we want to talk about this
1: fight at all? I know you do. You know I do. This You're- one is going to end up on the Demian Maya. Jitsu for mma dvd that i alone seem to want him to make where he buys the rights to all his fights and does his own commentary over it where he just sounds kind of monotone and bored while discussing how he is dismantling these dudes
0: i think that's going to be awesome when you like hit it rich on a scratch-off ticket and you can bankroll the damien maya instructional dvd where, where i
1: just i call him up and i just say damien our ship came in, brother.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be the like numbers those, hit. It's gonna be like those weird videos that John Dupont used to make of the Foxcatcher uh, wrestling facility, where he would just kind of walk around, and you could tell it was just made as a, like an ego boost for him. And but this will be like an ego boost for you in a weird way. Damian and will just come out and stand in front of the camera and be like. Hi Ben, it's me Damien. Uh, we are going to look at some of my favorite jujitsu finishes this week. So I he'll hope, just I he hope will, you
1: enjoy them. He will address me personally. Yes, he will address me personally okay. because
0: no one else will be watching the, the cassette tape. I well, assume this will be on VHS cassette tape.
1: The thing that's awesome to me about what Damien Maya is doing these days is the career tra- or like the style trajectory, I guess you could say that he went through is because when back when he kind of exploded on the scene in the UFC and he was obviously a jujitsu specialist and was tapping dudes out remember he he threw and then triangle choked shale sonan he pulled half guard on nate cory and then submitted him uh and was just tapping dudes left and right and then as he kind of climbed up the ranks he decided he needed to be more of a uh, a striker as well more of a threat on the feet and kind of fell in love with his boxing it seemed and had a couple boring fights and would lose decisions and, and uh, things didn't go his way and now he is at welterweight and Just embracing the fact that he he is a jujitsu guy and everybody knows what he's gonna do, but fuck them, they cannot stop it. And I love it, especially against a guy like Matt Brown where you know he's just thinking like, all right, I gotta stop some takedowns and then just rough this, roughneck this motherfucker. And immediately he's taken down. And then in the second round, immediately he's taken down. Whereas corner is telling him before the third round, like, all right, we're not going to give up a takedown this right. round.
0: His, like, Matt Brown's corner before the third round sounded like they were sending him out for a swimming race. And their, and their like advice was like, all right, just don't get in the water. We're going to be fine. <laughs> we're going to be fine as long as we don't wind up in the water. Here for the
1: 500-meter uh, butterfly stroke. But, you know, he had a chance. Like, he stopped a couple takedowns. DMI was looking a little tired and looking like he was – He I don't know. Maybe he thought that the takedowns would just – he took them for granted. They would come easy, and he was just kind of reaching a little bit, and Matt Brown shoved him off a couple times, and it looked like, okay, here's here's your chance now to come on, and even you know, sat him back down with a, a left hand when uh, Demian Maya was uh, coming off an unsuccessful takedown attempt. But then you get sucked back into it. He tries to go and follow him to the ground a little bit, and it's like even when you're basically in mount against Demian Maia, it's a bad idea. You should get out of there. And I can see how that just does not come naturally to, to anybody. Nobody is programmed really to think that way in a fight. You think you're, you, here's your moment. You're pressing your advantage. And then the next thing you know, you're, you're in the quicksand up to your ankle and then up to your knee. And then it's around your neck. And that's what happened to him.
0: Yeah, we have gushed about Damian Maya in the past on the podcast, but I do want to reiterate one more time how fucking good he must be at this shit because almost no one in the world does this anymore. Like almost no one in the world is so good at jujitsu that they can make guys like Matt Brown, Gunnar Nelson and Neil Magny just look silly. Just, just get dominated by what is essentially, essentially a, a a one-dimensional game plan, which is like and now that Damian Maya is super one-dimensional because like, as you, as you said, he did fall in love with his boxing for a while. We know he has some standup skills, but like, like you said, he goes out there, he is going to take you down and dominate you on the ground. You know that he knows that. And he still just does it, which is amazing when you consider like how good everyone
1: else is. Well, and after the fight where he makes his case for a title shot and calls on the jujitsu community. To help him That's make you. his case. you. He's talking to you. I can appreciate that. And I hope that the jiu-jitsu community does rally behind Demi and Maya. Because honestly, and I wrote this about this before, like, you know, a couple months ago about the, the case for why Demi and Maya should be a, a challenger for Robbie Lawler. And I think right now, I don't know how you can refute Demi and Maya as a, not only just he brings a different style matchup uh, to Robbie Lawler. He'll test Robbie Lawler in different ways. Maybe it's not going to be the same, just like stand up. Let's try to knock each other's heads off kind of thing. Unless Robbie Lawler can make it that way. And then it probably won't last very long. Uh, but either way it goes, it's going to be interesting. How do you not want to see that fight? No, I'm totally into it.
0: I want, I want, I do want to see it. Um, I would give Damien and Maya a decent chance in that fight.
1: Book that fight and take my money. That's what I'm saying.
0: Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, You know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss from Monday through Friday when we're not actually recording the podcast. We didn't have one last week, but that was because we recorded the podcast on Thursday last week, so there weren't no updates.
1: What do you want us to say?
0: There weren't nothing to say. No. But the Breakfast of Champions will return triumphantly this week, this Friday morning. So be sure you go to comainevent.com and sign up for that, because we don't want to see you get left out in the cold. And hey, man, if you get one issue with this thing and you decide you don't like it, what do you do, Ben?
1: Uh, resign yourself to a lifetime of receiving it, because no, there's no way to No, you subscribe? don't
0: have to. It's not like the FightPass.com. It's really easy to unsubscribe
1: but why would you want to
0: as for right now though we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number one Of Cleveland, Ohio, Stipe Miocic is the UFC heavyweight champion. Dude goes out there at UFC 198 for his heavyweight title fight against Fabricio Verdum, looking like he's taking a stroll in the park on a Sunday afternoon, chewing his gum while he walks to the cage just completely unfazed by 45,000 screaming Brazilians who we know from experience have no qualms was taking a swing at you themselves gets in the cage, looks relaxed, fluid. This was the kind of thing where for the first minute, you know, minute or two, I think to myself, wow, Steven Miocic looks really good here. And then forces Fabricio Verdum. I don't know if he forced him, but he prompted Fabricio Verdum to start chasing a little bit as we get into the second half of the first round. And uh, that's all she wrote, man. Kind of a little counter shot there, right to the jaw. No more
1: troll face. Yeah, uh, whole it, whole different troll face. The what happened face is what we saw from Fabrizio Verdum there, and it, there did not seem to be a whole lot on that punch either. It just caught Fabrizio Verdum, like you said, running straight into it with his chin up, uh, and for you know Stipe kind of parries with his his right hand, uh, pushes. Uh Verdum's hands not only aside, but kind of pushes them back into his own chest and then comes up with that right hand, you know, without really putting much on it as he's backing away and on the retreat and clocks him just right. And Verdum, not unlike the Jose Aldo, kind of just running straight forward when then you get hit and your feet just completely stop moving and you pitch forward onto your face. Uh, that was pretty much exactly how this one went. And then Stepe, your boy, jumps over the fence immediately celebrating with his corner and kind of, like, in convulsions of happiness repeating over and over again, I'm a world champ. I'm a world champ. Like, he can't quite believe it yet.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about that aspect of it a little bit here. Like, everybody loves Stepe Miocic. Everyone who listens to this podcast knows the co-main event podcast loves Stepe Miocic. He seems like for lack of a better term, a hell of a guy. And frankly, as an active-duty firefighter, if my house ever burns down, I pray to God that a dude like Stepe Miocic shows up to save me and my family and... Maybe some part of our home, part of our
1: fiery charred home. I picture him coming to you with these curtains and and black and tatters. And he's like, I'm sorry, I couldn't save the curtains. curtains. But you know what? I was just looking at him and I think it's probably for the best.
0: I mean, if your house burns down and a six foot four, 240 pound professional fighter shows up. Also a trained firefighter like you're in good shape,
1: man. That's about as good as you could hope for. Right. But did we expect him to be UFC heavyweight champion? I didn't, I mean, I wouldn't have put it out of the realm of possibility. I picked Verdum in this, but I it wasn't like I thought that uh, Fabricio Verdum is just going to steamroll him. The way he lost, though, I think is going to be something that we get stuck on the same way we are going to get a little stuck on the way Jose Aldo lost to Conor McGregor. Because it seemed like not that... Not to take anything away from Stipe's win, but it seemed more like impatience and uh, a dumb mistake on Verdum's part that Miosic capitalized on rather than Stipe just going out there and taking it to the champ uh, the way Fabrizio Verdum took it to Cain Velasquez. Which is not to say that that means anything different necessarily. You still are the champ. You still got that win. That, that fucker still counts. But I think that afterwards... Uh, you could already see kind of the rumblings of people saying, like, well, Verdum screwed up.
0: All right, I will say three things to that. Wow. First of all, the thing number one is that that's the heavyweight division. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, you get punched in the face, it's over, which it's possible that that is a drawback of the UFC heavyweight division. Uh, thing two is, it's not like this fight was Fabrizio Verdum kicking Stipe Miocic's ass until he got knocked out. It wasn't like, Stipe Miocic
1: kicking Verdum's ass either. No, it was but very I, competitive.
0: No, but I would say Stipe Miocic was winning up to the point that he won. I, I mean, he was winning. It was going about to be his round had it gone on another another minute or so. And number three, I would say that if that's the argument, that Fabrizio Verdum made a mistake and Stipe Miocic capitalized on it, I would say that is exactly how Fabricio Verdum won the title from Cain Velasquez, who also made a mistake by showing up in terrible shape for their fight in Mexico City, and Fabricio Verdum capitalized on it. I fail to see how this victory is any different and either more or less definitive than any other victory in the heavyweight division, which has a nature, has the nature of producing, perhaps not the most definitive outcomes. In fact, sometimes
1: it seems like this was just a complete crapshoot out there. Okay, and that's let's talk about that for a second and whether that's a drawback to the heavyweight division because I was thinking about this as I was writing my column afterwards. Who's the greatest heavyweight champion in UFC history there isn't
0: one I've already written a story about that wrote it earlier this year there's no greatest UFC heavyweight in in UFC history because the UFC heavyweight division has always been too unstable and just too much of a complete shit show for anyone to establish dominance like you've never no one has ever defended the belt more than twice right uh and it, sometimes it seems like having the UFC heavyweight title is the worst thing that can possibly happen to you and now that we have a man who works as a firefighter as the UFC <laughs> heavyweight champion i'm kind of scared <laughs> to be honest with you but uh no there there's no there's no greatest heavyweight of all time and in fact if steven Miocic goes out and loses to alistair overeem in his next fight which is a possibility I'm going to say there's no there's no such thing as the UFC heavyweight champion. This
1: is just a complete fucking coin flip every single time. Okay, but I think I know how you would answer this question. Who is the greatest heavyweight in MMA history? Fedor. All right. So why... Was it that Fedor was able to establish dominance? Is it because he was over there in Pride where they're going to feed you a couple Zulu Zinos? Is it because he, was, he just came along at the right moment with the right set of skills and things went his way? Like, why did it not seem like the heavyweight coin flip applied to Fedor?
0: Well, I mean, I don't think getting fed some Zulu Zinos hurts, certainly. But also, like, the UFC heavyweight division is just weird, man. Always has been. Fucking shit is cursed. I've said it all along. It just is. Like, Kevin Randleman slips on some trash in the back before his heavyweight title defense, and they have to cancel the thing. Frank Mir gets hit by an SUV. Brock Lesnar gets diverticulitis. Randy Couture gets multiple contract holdouts. They get stripped of the title.
1: Now, it's not exactly something that happened to him. It's something he initiated. It could have okay. clouded his judgment. <laughs> curse right. may have clouded his judgment. <laughs> right. Okay, I see where you're going. All right, well...
0: I mean, Doesn't Velasquez, for all we know, Kane Velasquez is as healthy as a horse before he wins the goddamn heavyweight title. And then, next thing you know, he can't walk down the street without blowing out every tenant in his knee. So does this hurt your appreciation of the division? Because it's still... I think anyone who
1: listens to this podcast knows that I do not appreciate the division. (laughs) Well, you can not appreciate the division as a whole, but I still think when you hear heavyweight title fight, a lot of people are going to get excited about that. There's a special kind of attraction to it. But then the MMA diehards also kind of know like, well, hey, man, anything could happen out there. But haven't we been sold on anything can happen as a good thing in the past? No, I mean, there
0: certainly is a an attraction to having the biggest dudes out there throwing down against each other. It's the reason they had to invent weight classes in the first place, right? Because to open the door to the smaller fighters, though, as Tank Abbott once said, not the giant door. Uh, but at the same time, I would... I would just my my opinion is that the heavyweight division is the worst division in, in MMA. I mean, I I know that it's it's sort of like just for fun. Like you're going to have two big hosses go out there and throw punches from their back pockets and whoever gets lucky enough to land a hard one first typically wins. But like if you want actual meaningful competition, I eh, probably you should watch the featherweights or bantamweights.
1: So now or flyweights. <laughs> now Stipe... Is the heavyweight champion? I couldn't
0: be happier for him.
1: How long do you think Stipe holds on to this title? Because I mean, history tells us not very long. History tells you that if you believe in gypsy curses and shit like which Chad, Dunn I does. do. But when you look at Stipe's record, right? He's fifteen and two overall. He's got that one knockout loss to, to Stefan Struve from back in 2012, and then he's got the decision loss to Junior Dos Santos. Which, let's be honest, could have easily gone his way. It's not too hard to imagine that. Stipe is sitting here with just the one basic like the one basically heavyweight coin toss knockout loss on his record then do you think that maybe he's the guy. He's the guy who could defend it a little while. He seems to have the skills. He's big enough that the the really big dudes like Overeem and Travis Brown and stuff aren't just going to come in there and push him around. He's quick enough that the smaller, quicker guys like Cain Velasquez aren't going to run circles around him. He seems to be kind of in that happy medium. Like if I were building a fighter on the like build a fighter part of the UFC video game uh, and I were going to build a heavyweight just because I'm a sadist or something, this is this would be the kind of heavyweight you'd
0: build, right? Yeah, he's got a lot of stuff going for him. He's relatively young for the division. I think he's only 33 years old, like you said. He's pretty athletic. He's 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 very talented. He seems to uh have had a lot of success there, but like we just had the same discussion about Fabrizio Verdum like 4 days ago about whether or not he was the guy to finally get more than two title defenses because uh We thought that things set up nicely for him. Like, he came in as a favorite over Miocic. We figured he gets past Stipe Miocic. Then he fights Alistair Overeem, who's sort of on the decline. And and Verdum already has a win over Alistair Overeem. They're one and one against each other. And then after that, he ends up fighting the winner of Travis Brown against Cain Velasquez, both of whom he's already defeated. So we were like, ah, Fabrizio Verdum has a pretty good chance of being the guy. So I'm not going to sit here on Monday and tell you that Stipe Miocic is the guy who will reverse the curse of the UFC heavyweight division. Uh, just because I feel like that would be too optimistic of us, not because Steve Amiocic isn't super good because he is not because I'm not super happy that he's the UFC heavyweight champion because I am, but because we have a lot of history of instability and, uh, like farcical sense of, of injustice regarding this division. That's too deep seated for me to come out and say, it's over.
1: You think first he needs to find that amulet and throw it in the ocean or something? <laughs> yeah, he needs to find Boss Ruten's amulet, or he needs to bury that shrunken head that is hanging out. That's what happened. Dana White and collecting like weird artifacts like saber tooth tiger skulls and shit like that. He's got like some shrunken head from the Amazon somewhere in the the Zufa offices. Steepy has to find it, bury it back in the rainforest. Then it's all clean slate. The shrunken head of Ensign Inouye or something. <laughs>
0: yeah. I don't know. Uh, the man has already brought a major championship to Cleveland. I mean, What else can he do? Maybe he is the one to reverse the curse. No, that's crazy. Uh, probably not. Do you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Yeah. And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week?
1: Well, Chad, I know that this news broke your heart, but remember those Fabricio Verdum troll face masks that he was going to hand out and make sure that the entire crowd wore to further intimidate Stipe Miocic and let him know that he was on Verdum's turf. Turns out those were not allowed in the arena. Uh, Fans were told to throw those away on MMA fighting. uh, Guillermo Cruz posted a picture of a bunch of those troll face masks piled up in the trash outside the arena. So here we have a fun gimmick where a guy going out of his way on his own dime personally To find a way to stand out, to get a little something fun going in the crowd, get a little home field advantage going, something different, and the UFC or the arena staff, but it sounds like probably the UFC asking the arena staff... Puts the kibosh on it because God forbid we have any fun around here. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Why can't he wear the troll mask? I think the, the problem was that in the troll mask, he's wearing a headband that has the name of some kind of betting sports website. Yeah. and wasn't going to fly. But see, why wouldn't it fly? He's not wearing it into the octagon. Weren't we told that fighters can have their own sponsors? They just have to get creative about how they engage those sponsors outside the cage. This is technically outside the cage. He's not bringing anything to them. How the hell are these guys supposed to do that if at every turn the UFC keeps them from giving any value to their sponsors or having any damn fun? You're fucking kidding me.
0: you fucking kidding me. Fabricio Verdum sitting up late in his hotel room with a pair of scissors and a glue gun.
1: <laughs> like a some string who knows how this fight might have been different if there had been 45,000 Verdooms out there Chad. who knows
0: well Ben we talked about this before we started recording the show and you told me you tuned out During the promo commercial for looking for a fight during UFC 198, straight up, hit the mute button. Well, then you missed an amazing testimonial interview with Dana White during this interview of his internet reality show where he, Matt Sarah and Nick the tooth are going to go out and ride bulls uh, because that has something to do with looking for a fight. I guess Uh, Dana White says to the camera that he is not afraid of anything, including death. And so, The feeling of fear that overcomes him as he is astride this gigantic bull that he's about to ride is Dana White feeling scared maybe for the first time in his life. (laughs) To which I say, are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? It kind of makes you like, don't you feel kind of bad for Dana White if he actually goes through life without the fear of death? Of being just kind of like, I don't know, man, if I die, you know,
1: I die, I guess, today. See, this is why he has a problem empathizing with people. It's because he has never known human fear. That's, but now maybe after this bull riding experience, everything will be different. And you know, I got—I I told you this before, but I got an email from the people where, where they email me every time that there's a looking for a fight, trying to pitch it to me, and like, oh, media members, check out the new episode of Dana White looking for a fight. And they described the bull riding stuff as an episode like no other. Like, basically, it was just going to be breaking new ground in reality tv which i feel like if you've seen half a season of rock of love maybe a bachelor or two maybe a real world road, road rules challenge season you've pretty much seen everything that they would do on dana white looking for a fight it's yeah, just I'm, different i'm people pretty sure that ray j and paris hilton have have been bull riding at some point on their respective seems trips. like it
0: that's gonna do it for round number one we'll be right back with round number two
1: Chad Christiane Cyborg Justino goes out there against Leslie Smith at a catch weight of 140 pounds in the women's division. And one minute, 21 seconds is all it takes for her to get the stoppage, which Leslie Smith was not too thrilled about. But I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. Here's the thing, though. You're thinking afterwards, after Cyborg makes her victorious UFC debut in under a minute and a half, that she'll get on the mic And say, Ronda Rousey, get your shit together. Do some real Daniel Cormier shit. I mean, the kid
0: at the wrestling tournament. I'm the kid in your your bracket. bracket.
1: Yeah, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm something, something like that. And instead, we get no mention of Ronda Rousey, no mention of the cyborg's future plans to conquer the UFC women's division. Instead, we get her showing up at the press conference afterwards saying that she does not see herself going down to 135 pounds to fight Misha Tate uh, for the title or to to claim the title from whoever may have it. And this after she just got down to 139 pounds for this fight, which leaves me feeling like, what did we just do here? What are we about here?
0: Yeah. I mean, the aftermath was kind of a anticlimactic. I'll, I'll give you that much. I thought that it was like a cool moment to see cyborg come to the octagon, especially in her hometown, uh, and sprint to the cage and high five the fans there and Curitiba. And then obviously she went out and overwhelmed Leslie Smith uh, like I think we all expected her to. The stoppage was a little bit premature. And if you are Leslie Smith, yeah, man, that's going to piss you off. But if if you are everyone else in the world, you are basically like eh, they, you got saved a, more of a beating. It's kind of what happened. Uh, but you know, still feel a little bit bad for Leslie Smith, but you're right. Uh, kind of an anti-climax in the aftermath cyborg played it pretty cool on the mic, uh, to kind of downplayed her future in the UFC. Says she wants to go back to Invicta and, uh, defend her, uh, women's featherweight championship. Uh, and I think did have some words for Ronda Rousey on social media later, but like certainly didn't capitalize, capitalize on that moment. But honestly, man, like, I'm inclined to say more power to Cyborg in a way like it's weird. You feel like she should want to be in the UFC. She should want to make that big money, but like they don't have her weight class there. And I could I could see her feeling a little bit indignant about that, especially if she legitimately feels like it will be medically unsafe to get all the way down to 135 pounds. I could kind of see her basically being like, fuck you, man. I'm not playing your game. I'm not going down to 135 and killing myself so that a, some lesser version of me can show up and fight these people you've you've got me to fight. Like, I'm a 145-pound fighter. I'll, I will continue to do my thing in that division. That obviously is a huge letdown for the rest of us. But, like, I kind of feel her pain a little bit. And, frankly, at this point, it feels like she could be such a monster for lack of a better word in the ufc or such like a a revelatory figure kind of that like i almost feel like it would be the right move to just throw a belt on her at 145 pounds and like put together whatever fights you could make for her because you know there's people that would go up there to fight her for that title
1: yeah but see that's the thing is that that would be what has to happen is people would have to go up to her and fight her. And, you know, I, just like I agree with you that you can't really blame her if she feels like she can't go down to 135. Um, and maybe this cut helped her realize that because she did get down to 139, you know, not, not too far from that. And maybe if she felt like, well, that was pushing it. Uh, I'm not going to do that again, then okay. But, but otherwise, I felt like if the plan was not to gradually try to get down to 135, then why do a catch weight fight here at all? Why didn't she just fight at 145? Like, the UFC can say, like, okay, we don't have the 145 division. You don't have a 140-pound division either. Like, you just came up with something so that Cyborg could fight, and then you asked, basically, a 125-pound fighter to to go ahead and take the fight and go up there. So what was the point of doing it that way? Uh, I don't know exactly what we learned from that.
0: Yeah, it's a very weird situation, and and it does seem, you know, and and Cyborg has kind of gone back and forth over the years about whether or not she would be able to get down to 135, whether or not she would try it. It's just speculation at this point, but it does kind of seem like, as you said, going down to 139 was maybe like, maybe she did that and felt like that was as low as she could possibly go, because that's a big four pounds. It is. If you have to cut that weight.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, So maybe she decided that she just could not go any lower than that, Uh, in which case, I mean, like it feels like a loss to me to have this woman who's uh, might be the most dominant women's MMA fighter on the planet and like to have her come along at this era in the sport where the world's largest promoter doesn't have a weight class for her just seems like a missed opportunity to me.
1: Well, yeah, but I don't even think it's—it's it's not like there are a ton of great hundred women's hundred forty-five pounders out there right now who you could imagine populating that weight class instantly if the UFC created it the way there was for one thirty-five right. when the UFC created that one. Because you know, Danny Downs and I were talking about this uh, in our uh, trading shots thing, and he was saying like, "Hey, didn't you know? You say it would be ridiculous for the UFC to create a division just for one person in in Cyborg." but isn't that what they did with Ronda Rousey? The difference is you had a lot of people you could put in that division and now look at it. like She's not really technically in it right now uh, for all practical purposes, and it's still doing just fine. Uh, And I just don't know that that would be the case at 145 pounds. Yeah, I see the
0: drawbacks for sure, and it would be kind of a a Ronda Rousey-style situation. Uh, I think you would have people who would be willing to go up there and fight her. I think Holly Holm has said in the past, or at least her camp, has said in the past that she would go to 145 to fight Cyborg. I got to think Misha Tate would probably be game. Like Rhonda used to fight at that weight, which is always the the elephant in the room of their discussion about who was going to fight at, at what weight. But then, but like, I mean, you just, I think, I feel like you would have to have kind of a loosey goosey approach to it, unfortunately. Like, you're not going to have a thriving 145 pound division, but. I feel like you could put a belt on her and just kind of make the fights as they come. And I mean, if you, and I I understand fully all of the, the drawbacks and limitations of doing that. But again, it's a situation where like, if you don't
1: do that, what do you do? Yeah. Well, I think the problem with thinking, all right, well, other people just go up and fight her because there'll be money in it and it'll be a big fight. And yeah, it will be in that. Maybe eventually you'd get there, but the, that's kind of, it's, the downside to what we've talked about before is that right now you're not too worried about who gets the next shot at women's 135 pounds is because they're all going to fight. Uh, Holly Holm, Misha Tate, Ronda Rousey, you got uh, the makings of some great round robin action there, and that can carry you through for the next couple years. Right. Nobody's going to go up to fight Cyborg at 145 pounds, unless they absolutely have to, unless there's no other fight available, and that is the the biggest fight that you can possibly make. And right now, that's not the case. And it's not going to be the case anytime soon. And she's just downright scary right now, especially in this fight against Leslie Smith. I think you saw that this wasn't necessarily a case of Cyborg going out there and winning by just being the bigger, stronger fighter. Like, she was the technically better striker, and we saw that uh, in just broad strokes in a minute and 21 seconds it didn't take long for us to see okay she is a really good fighter she's not just going out there and by brute force uh beating people smaller than her yeah i mean invicta's been finding people for her to
0: fight well they've been finding people
1: for They're... her to beat the shit out of
0: well i Come on. i mean that's what you're going to have though like i that that's <laughs> that's going to be the outcome here right like i'm not sure that there's a different outcome for that unless you can find a weight where she can fight the, the three other big stars in this sport. I'm just saying I don't think that it's it's that legitimate of an argument to say there's not going to be anyone for her to fight if you put a, a featherweight belt on her. Uh, but I don't know, man. I, I guess ultimately at the end of the day, it's an imperfect situation with Cyborg right now. I, I, and I don't know. I honestly don't know what the answer is unless you just keep giving her catchweight fights, which is less than ideal i think because there's like there's no narrative there other than the fact that cyborg's scary and she fights at 140
1: yeah that's the i I just i wonder what the future is here
0: yeah uh, we will find out it sounds like she wants to go back to invicta and defend her women's featherweight championship but will still continue to take catchweight fights in the ufc uh so we'll see took him an awful goddamn long time to set up this fight so maybe there's no uh sense of urgency there to, to do it again we'll find out i thought it was kind of exciting and, and cool to see her in the ufc but uh whether or not it happens again remains to be seen uh anyway that's going to do it for round number two we will be right back with round number three Ben, I'm sure that some people will contact us to wag their fingers at us for having a nine minute and 30 second discussion about Christiane Cyborg Justino without mentioning her positive steroid test back in 2011, when she tested positive for stenozolol after a defense of her strike force women's featherweight championship. And that builds us a bridge to this next round where we're going to talk about, uh, Ronaldo Jacare Souza Jacare, Jacare. and his win over Vitor Belfort at UFC 198 in a middleweight fight, which ended in the first round via TKO. Uh, I don't want to spend this entire round talking about Vitor Belfort and TRT and how he looks like a lesser version of himself
1: now. Uh, kind of just said it all when you said it, but okay.
0: But what what would, what was your takeaway here from this fight? Like, uh, Ronaldo Souza kind
1: of rough-necked Vitor Belfort here. He did, and kind of a strange approach by Vitor Belfort here. Uh, I thought... Going into this fight, my thinking on it was a pretty typical Vitor Belfort fight that for the first two to three minutes, he's going to be really dangerous. And if Jacques Array is still standing after that two to three minutes, then it's his fight. Then he takes him down and does his Jacques Array thing, and Vitor Belfort's not going to be able to stop him. And this one, Belfort didn't even get those two to three minutes. Instead, it seemed like he was wary of the takedown uh, and so did not go on his usual blitzing attack. And that just made it easier on Jacare. He just played right into his hands to let him kind of work himself slowly into getting a takedown and getting it to the mat. And then once he does that, then you're in trouble. And even when Vitor Belfort got up and then I guess pulling guard on, I still hesitate to call it that because that just seems so baffling to me. Uh, although maybe Vitor Belfort is thinking, hey, I I almost armed Bart John Jones. Let me just try this on Jacques Array, one of the best uh, jiu-jitsu fighters in MMA right now, and then we'll take our chances there. But I don't know. I mean, to me, that kind of seems like a Vitor Belfort's tells maybe. Uh, because right there with the blitzing in the first two to three minutes is sometimes mentally breaking later in fights. Like those two kind of go hand in hand for me as Vitor Belfort uh, MOs. And it seems like we saw one and not the other in this one, uh, which kind of makes you wonder, what do you do with Vitor Belfort after this?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the man is 39 years old at this point. He's been doing this since he was 19 or younger. Uh, it's possible that at that age and after all those fights, maybe that that two-minute burst is is not going to be viable anymore, or or it's just going to be lessened. It will be, you know... I guess they say you get old in one night. Maybe he got old in one night against Jacare Souza, but like if if you're if you're hanging your hat on on 2 minutes of explosive athleticism, like that's going to disappear at some point, you would think.
1: But I would uh, I was thinking it would go down to like a minute and a half and then like 45 <laughs> seconds. Like the, like Toby Keith like I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. I was thinking that's where we'd go with Vitor Belfort.
0: Well, and I mean like you said, Jacare Souza is kind of an awkward matchup. If that's your style, you don't want to go out there uh, and try to blitz him like you did Vanderlei Silva, you know, years ago now. Because he, he Jacare, is one of the few jujitsu fighters in in MMA who has really good takedowns. And if he does take you down, then you're where you don't want to be. If you're Vitor Belfort, i not that that answers the second part of your equation, which would be why Vitor Belfort would ever at least appear to try to pull guard in this fight, which was just baffling.
1: Yeah. Well. And I think with Vitor Belfort, the I, I wrote about this a little bit beforehand. Like when you're thinking about what Vitor Belfort's legacy is going to be, because he's just been in this sport for so damn long, and pretty much all of that at the the highest level in either the UFC or Pride. But you know, 20 years basically of and multiple eras of MMA of, of being right there as one of the top guys in several different divisions, and so it's hard to pick out you know what was this guy's career about what was his legacy about but if it ends this way like on this kind of trajectory it's going to be hard not to feel like he was a guy who when he could use whatever vitamins he wanted to use was downright scary and then when he couldn't uh was noticeably less scary and noticeably less physically imposing uh and that might be unfair to him because some of that could just be the natural decline of age, yeah. that no matter what vitamins you're taking, that's going to eventually happen to you. But because of the timing and everything, it, I think in retrospect, it will look like, well, Vitor Belfort was doing all right. It looked like he was headed for a middleweight title. And then the UFC got USADA involved and TRT got thrown out of the sport. And next thing you know... Uh, the only guys you can beat are Dan Henderson, another old guy who had to get off the TRT.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't. I think that there is. I don't know that there's anyone else in the sport where there's as wide a gulf between the man that they are on PEDs and the man that they are without PEDs and Vitor Belfort. And that's not necessarily a TRT thing. That is a entire career story for for Vitor Belfort. At the same time, though, I mean, we're we're kind of uh, Closing the book on Vitor Belfort here. This is a guy where his last four losses are Jacare, Chris Weidman, John Jones, and Anderson Silva. So like, fair point. If you wanna, if you wanna plot a Shogun Hua style career trajectory from here on out for Vitor Belfort, like I think that that you could probably do that. You could. There's, there's middleweights out there that that uh, that Vitor Belfort could probably get booked in fights against and and maybe win a couple and maybe lose a couple. Who knows? Uh, let's talk a little about Jacare though. Because um, he obviously is the big winner in this fight, uh, a guy at 36 who's also getting up there in years. Uh, but at this point, you've got that split decision loss to Yoel Romero last December. And other than that, kind of a clean sheet for Jacare Souza, dating all the way back to his loss to Luke Rockhold and another close decision.
1: Which he would uh, remind us uh, might have been the victim of some judging malfeasance. I love that he brought that up in his post fight interview. I yeah. uh, lost a decision in 2011 and he wants to talk about how one of the judges was inexperienced.
0: Not that, uh, that's needling him at all. Yeah. Uh, it seems like Jacare has kind of got number one contendership. Like you would think sewed up after we get through with this, uh, uh, Luke Rockhold, Chris Weidman feud, which may or may not go three fights. We'll have to see.
1: Let's hope it doesn't. I, I come on. I, I could, it's a stretch, I think to make it go two fights, but fine. Okay. You want to do that one again. Uh, But then you've got to give Jacare his shot. Uh, And I think that the Jacare now is way more interesting, uh, a title challenger to either Weidman or Rockhold, than the Jacare of 2011 when it was him and Luke Rockhold for the Strikeforce Middleweight Championship. I just feel like he's not unlike Demian Maia. He's kind of more into his stride now, knowing who he is and what he does. Uh, And, you know, just you look at his record, I don't see how... You justify giving anybody else the a, a title shot unless you just decide that the middleweight division from now on is Luke Rockhold versus Chris Weidman, and we're going to take it to every city in America.
0: Yeah, not a lot happening up near the top of the middleweight rankings. You got Weidman and Rockhold, Jacare Souza officially number two on the UFC's officially rankings right now. After that, you got Vitor, uh, then Michael Bisping, and Anderson Silva rounds out the top five. Then at number six, now you got Robert Whitaker. The young gun of the division who's creeping on a come up a little bit here uh, but in terms of immediate title shot situations it seems like jaqueray or Bisping or nothing at all uh so so hopefully he will get that chance before too much time goes on because it's not as though Jacque Souza is dealing with an unlimited window here uh he's a guy who obviously is is not a spring chicken in this division
1: yeah no I mean he's not uh it's not like he's a heavyweight and just going to come into his peak in his late 30s. That's here. right.
0: Yeah, he would just be getting into a whole new strength training regimen right now if he were a heavyweight. He'd be doing the bench press with the chains on the <laughs> yes. on the sides of the bar so it yeah. gets heavier as you push the bar up, which uh, that'll, that'll add a couple of years to your career right there, Yeah, just throwing yeah. those chains Easy. on the end of the bench press bars.
1: Well, and you, you mentioned a guy like Robert Whitaker. Uh, if you want to know if the UFC – hates vitor belfort see if they book him against robert whitaker next see see if they book him for a fight like that because that's where you talk about the you know what do you do with a guy in his situation is you know maybe you put him up against somebody lower down the ranks he loses a couple wins a couple or one of the things you do is you match up your your old lion young dinosaur against somebody you think is creeping on a come up and could use a, a win over a big name uh, and you use that to kind of vault them into contention. If you do that, then it means that the USC will probably have mentally at least written off Vitor Belfort. Well, Globo's never going to go for that.
0: <laughs> okay. Globo's going to be like, what's Fabio Maldonado doing? <laughs> CB Dalloway still around? That's what Globo will say. Uh, all right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, a, a few months ago on the podcast, I proclaimed that uh, Francisco Trinaldo, was a member of Team Dundas because I like the way the 37-year-old uh, Mas Andruba, did I say that right? No idea. I think that means that he worships the Lord of Light. Uh, I like the way he kept winning fights that it seemed like he was he was supposed to lose. To that end, Francisco Trinaldo goes out and defeats Yancey Medeiros at UFC 198. Hashtag still Team Dundas. But I also wanted to announce the addition of a new Team Dundas fighter during this Just Saying Stuff, and that is another dude who goes out there and continues to win fights that maybe he's, he's supposed to lose, and that is 18th century deckhand on a pirate ship, Brian Barbarina. Welcome to Team Dundas, Brian. Hashtag Team Dundas, just saying. Just
1: saying. I should have known that Brian Barbarina would be one of your guys. Going out there, the prospect killer, Brian wow. Barbarina. And the prospector. If you've seen his beard, (laughs) looks like he's out
0: there panning for gold. Turn your back on him. He'll cut your throat. (laughs) Steal the gold dust
1: out of your pocket. Well, my just saying stuff will also bring us back to that Francisco Trinaldo, Yancey Medeiros fight, except I'm going to focus on the the loser of the decision there, Yancey Medeiros, who I think officially proved that he is tough as shit because he seemed like he was basically knocked out several times in that fight, beginning like in the first round, uh, to the point where in the third round at points he could not even stand up under his own power, and still somehow not only finished the fight, but got on top of Francisco Trinaldo uh, when the fight went down to the ground in the last minute. I'm just saying, Chad, that you know how like in a fight with... Cyborg and Leslie Smith, where it seems like there's an early stoppage. And one of the ways that we make ourselves feel better is to say, better an early stoppage than a late stoppage. Yeah. Well, then a guy like Yancey Medeiros comes along and puts on that kind of a, a gutsy, gritty performance where it seems like it should have been stopped a long time ago and it's kind of awesome and it forces you to reconsider that, that maybe sometimes it is totally rad to watch a guy where the fight should be over and he's still battling and still giving everything he's got and it makes you feel kind of like a dirtbag for even having that thought. I'm just saying, Yancy Medeiros just made me question my whole damn worldview. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's
0: uh, edition of the Co Main Event Podcast. Ben, you're going on vacation. You're going to be back next week? Are we going to be able to do this thing next week? I'll Monday? be back
1: next week. I'm on vacation all this week. I'm officially on vacation right now, but I still came in here to your boudoir and did the damn thing.
0: Yeah, wearing your uh, parrot head shirt and your uh, sombrero. So I'm glad that you were able to take some time off from your vacation. It's 5 o'clock somewhere, man. I'm going <laughs> do that. So next Monday, it's on. It's on. We'll be back next week to. Uh, Record another episode of the podcast. I just realized I have no idea what's what, if anything, is happening. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are
1: out. I like how it feels like there's just kind of a a sepia glow in this room.
0: That's the curtains, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know that's not cheap. You don't get the sepia glow if you go down there and buy your curtains at the import. You have to get on the internet.